парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page, at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is the first in a two-part series on migration in Russia's past and present. From the 1970s to the end of the Soviet Union, hundreds of thousands of Uzbeks, Tajiks, Georgians, Azerbaijanis, and others migrated to Moscow and Leningrad seeking opportunity. Through extensive oral histories, my guest, Jeff Sahadeo, not only narrates the lives of these migrants, but also shows how concepts such as friendship of peoples worked alongside racism, the dynamism and opportunity in the Brezhnev years the core periphery relations in Soviet society, and the dramatic changes perestroika and collapse brought to Central Asian migrants. Jeff Sahadeo is an associate professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. He's the author of Russian Colonial Society in Tashkent, 1865-1923, and co-author of Everyday Life in Central Asia. His new book is Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow, published by Cornell University Press. Here's Jeff Sahadeo. Um, I thought we'd start by just, can you please introduce yourself, who you are, uh, what are your interests? I am Jeff Sanadeo. I am the Associate uh, Director of the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies and Associate Professor at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. So I'm the author, of course, of the book that we'll be talking about today. Uh, also the author of Russian Colonial Society in Tashkent and the co-editor of Everyday Life in Central Asia, Past and Present. Uh, I've done a number of research trips and published articles on the Caucasus, Central Asia in particular, focusing really on issues of colonialism, of, of human movement, uh, identity, uh, and really this project is the culmination of a long uh, journey of oral histories, um, field research, and um, thoughts about the way not only the Soviet Union evolved in its last decades, but also the way that people's thoughts and memories have changed uh, since then. Yeah, you, you, it certainly is uh, packed into a lot of, um, I, I can see that in, the, in just in the the, I mean, the voices of the book, it really is a kind of culmination of your previous work in, in a real humanistic form, which is which is always lovely for those of us who, you know, as yourself, you mostly deal with dead people. So you're actually dealing with living people this time. So your new book is called Voices from the Soviet Edge, 
Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow. And so uh, how did you get interested in migration in this period of the last decades of the Soviet Union? Well, the original inspiration from the book came from just something I tucked away in my brain from when I first went to Moscow. And this was in 1992. And I I just missed going to the Soviet Union. It still bothers me. Uh, It was 1992 when I was there for the first time. And I I just expected, I suppose, growing up in Canada to, to see people who would look like Russian hockey players or ballerinas or babushkas or something. And Moscow was this incredibly international city, just all people from Caucasus, Central Asia, China, Africa, India. And I thought, who are these people and, and what are they doing there? Uh, and I, I had this puzzle in my mind and I thought, one of these days, I'm just going to find out what was going on. Because it reminded me a little bit of when my father, who grew up in Trinidad and then moved to London in the 1950s and 60s, was describing uh, London. And as it started to attract all these people from across the, the its colonial world. And I thought, is, is there something similar going on there? Um, and when I finished this book on Tashkent, you know, as you were talking about earlier, one of the things I missed was talking to living people. I mean, you can go to archives, you can find voices. I thought, I really want to interrogate people. What were they doing there? Why did they come? What would motivate someone from some small village in Tajikistan to go to Moscow in 1980 or 1985 or something like that? And I just started with that and just uh, went to see where it would take me. Your book is based on a lot of oral uh, interviews and and hence the, the, the voices in the title. And talk about the and, and this is always interesting, especially for for historians, you know, how do you go about talking to living people? How do you find them? What's your experience? What do you learn from them? Uh, so talk about the process of of just getting these interviews and the type of voices in them. Yeah, it was definitely a learning process. And one thing that made it a little bit easier is I had built in networks to start because, of course, many of these people who had come from the Caucasus and Central Asia to Leningrad and Moscow in the late Soviet period were academic. Uh, and so I knew some of these people personally, and I could I could start interrogating them about their experiences. Uh, and then my idea was to move in concentric waves outwards to try and find different kinds of migrants. Um, but even with these initial contacts, so either people I knew or, or people that uh, I was connected to by close friends, um, the process is interesting because it's it's cross-cultural, it's sort of cross-time, it's sometimes cross-generational, cross-gender, and all of these things are, have an impact on, on the performative aspect of the interview and the way people think through it. And of course, then there are also people who are very chatty, people who are very quiet. And one of my biggest frustrations was sometimes I'd ask this key question I was writing, you know, how, how were you treated by the Russian population or um, what was your experience? And just these broader questions and people would just answer with one word, oh, normalma. It was fine. <laughs> and I was like, well, <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> Whereas other people, I'd ask them one question, they'd go on for two hours. So um, I really had to adjust not only the questions I was asking, but also try and realize that this was a two-way process and the people who I was talking to were using the interview process to really think, rethink the way their own history went. So they started to go back to their own village life and, and recasting their own personal narratives based on what had happened to them since then and also based on what they thought I might want to hear and the stories they might want to tell based on the time that I was going. So um, I hadn't really intended to make oral histories as central to the project. And part of the reason that happened was just uh, because there wasn't much in the written records about these people that I was looking at. The, the Soviet state wanted to portray 
Leningrad and Moscow showcase cities or the privileged. So some of the people that I was looking at, traitors and, and these kinds of people weren't in these records. I mean, they slip in in sort of crime files and, and things. So oral histories um, were became really critical, but it was transformative for me because being able to really understand how people thought about the Soviet Union and, and why they moved and and just the how even two people had very similar experiences conceptualize them completely differently. So I tried in the book to to really relate as, as much as I could the, the color of these interviews and also to say that it's, it's not a science, obviously. And, and, you know, we do the best we can. I try and triangulate with written sources. And oral histories are not um, unique. I mean, written histories, uh, written documents have all their own methodological issues. But um, there is something very special about the way uh, these things unfolded. And I, I really enjoyed not only doing them, but also even just sort of thinking about them afterwards and trying to figure out how do we think about the performative, the emotive aspect versus the actual content that they're telling? Right. I would imagine that in, for a lot of these people who, you know, in having to articulate their their story, their migration story and their experience, it's probably one of the first times they're actually putting it all together uh, for themselves. So how did they, um, when you when you go and you, I'm always interested in this, people who are doing research and, and interview people. How did they regard you and what you were interested in? Did they, were they eager um, or what did they just think of you as somebody from, you know, Canada coming to talk about, to ask them about their migration experience? How did they uh, deal with that? Yeah, it was very uh, varied in terms of the way people approached me. And often, again, it would depend on the type of person they were. So if it wasn't academic, they were quite comfortable with the whole process and, and it was very very natural. Um, sometimes some of the people uh, that I interviewed were leaders of contemporary diaspora organizations in Moscow who had been some of the original migrants. They had very particular narratives that they wanted to give me. And basically, it was a narrative of how our migrant network has been very successful. And, and um, this was uh, this this was less about the full story of their diaspora than about a success story. So they had ways that they wanted to um, get this out to a North American audience, and they were very conscious of, of who I was. Um, there are others who uh, say, so traders were the hardest group of people to find. Um, at first, I tried to, to find them in Leningrad and Moscow. I worked with colleagues of mine, but it turned out People who had traded in this in the Soviet Union, um, you know, they're in their 40s and 50s now. They'd all gone back home. So basically, I had to go to Azerbaijan. I had to go to Kyrgyzstan, um, find colleagues who had um, grad students from small villages, and then and then they would kind of put me in touch with these people. Uh, and I think I was quite the curiosity for them. Um, some of them were a little bit. Maybe I want to say intimidated. They they didn't think their story was important enough um, for me to. So I had to really sort of prod these people, which is sort of hard to do because some of these people, the traders, weren't that comfortable necessarily in Russian, and I really wasn't comfortable interviewing in, in languages other than Russian. Uh, so that became a bit of an issue. Where there were others who were just they were so excited that someone wanted to hear from them, and, and you, you couldn't shut them up. So that became another issue in terms of trying to understand how to <clears throat> interpret these um, stories is, is this aspect of how they how they treat you in a power relationship, too. And also, I had students of mine who were going out and doing some of these interviews, and you could tell that these people would have different ways that they would approach it if they were talking to someone like myself versus, a, let's say, 20 or 30-something grad student. And I, I saw in the interview transcripts a couple of my students, because a couple of people were questioning 
or about sort of gender or sexual relations or something like that. And I noticed that the, when the women were doing these interviews and we would ask a question about relationships with Russian women, either with you or with others, and they love to brag <laughs> to these women, um, more so than they did to me, which I found was interesting. I think because I was a professor, they felt it should be kept on more of an academic level. But with these students, they would say, oh, tell your professor that's a great question. And I, you know, I stuck with this woman. And, and, you know, in my time, I was this great lover. And, and uh, um, so it was, it was, it was, a, it was interesting to, to see. And again, one of these things that became, on the one, on the one hand, a challenge to work through in the book, but on the other hand, this this great opportunity to get these. Often, when people go off script, because you just give them a question, and it's like, oh wow, I, I hadn't thought about that, and let me let me just all of a sudden um, come up with an answer. And it was it was really interesting just to see how. I think at the end, people were really gratified that they had done the interview because they things they hadn't thought about for years, people they hadn't thought about. And they, for most of them, they tended to want to portray their past in a way that led to a successful narrative to where they were today. Not in all cases, or some who were victims of prejudice in contemporary Russia who, who went back and said, oh, it was awful all the time. But generally, generally people want to think their lives are, are, are good and, and worthwhile. And, and so... I think they were really happy to go back and, and have somebody prod them about this uh, this life that they led in, in when they were when they were young and, and energetic in their twenties and thirties and I think that was that was a big nostalgia issue too is, is they love to talk about that. Yeah, there is there is a lot of interesting things about nostalgia that I want to get to later, uh, but first uh, let's you know step back in time a bit because you know Moscow and Saint Petersburg slash Leningrad have been magnets for migration throughout Russian history. So uh, talk about the broader historical context for migration uh, and migration networks to the centers of Russia, to the core from the periphery. Yeah, these networks have been developing uh, with different ethnic communities over different times. And really, of course, you would see um, even by the by the early 18th century, you see a Tatar community. By the early 19th century, you're starting to see fairly established uh, Georgian and Armenian communities. Uh, Leningrad, St. Petersburg, and then slash Leningrad in Moscow, they were they were sort of wiped and rewiped several times. So the um, the communities of the pre-revolutionary era were sort of, were overrun in a sense by the by the revolution, civil war. Then there was a bit of a buildup in the 1920s and 1930s of ethnic communities that were destroyed. First of all, by the way that Moscow was completely rebuilt in the 1930s. So that was one you know, one of these issues that I I really wanted to get at was well, were there ethnic geographical communities in these cities with their neighborhoods that were Georgian or Armenian. And there were up until the 1930s in, in Moscow when Stalin bulldozed and remade so much of the city. And then up until the up until the Second World War in Leningrad, they said we sort of knew that there were neighborhoods where there was a Georgian Orthodox Church, and of course you know, those were destroyed in the 1930s. Um, but the Second World War kind of reset everything in a sense. But certainly the the idea that Moscow and Leningrad were the privileged hearts of the Soviet Union, and that was there really from from the 1920s onwards with uh, the universities that were established there, uh, the Communist University of the so-called Toilers of the East, for example, and the, the idea that if you wanted to, to, to make it in the Soviet Union, um, truly ascend, you needed to go and study or, or work in, in Leningrad and Moscow. And so there were there were networks from people from the from the 1950s who sort of knew people 
um, from the 30s, but of course, so many of the national elites were wiped out of the purges. So a lot of, uh, and a lot of people who ended up coming in the 1950s were almost people who actually, ironically enough, went to Moscow to hide because they they knew that their past, they had a, a parent who was executed in the 30s, and they, um, you know, with Stalin's very unpredictable behavior in the last couple of years of his reign, uh, they didn't really know what would happen to them. So they left Azerbaijan, went to Moscow, hoping that it was a big enough city, they would just kind of lose themselves and nobody could ever find their files that were in Baku or wherever, and they would go. Um, and then you started to get these waves of people as the Soviet Union settled down in the 1960s and 1970s. And, and I think the the biggest wave starts to come, first of all, the sort of this educational wave, which was then connected because people would go um, to Leningrad and Moscow, often from small towns in, in wherever Uzbekistan, um, Azerbaijan, Georgia, they would see the lack of, say, fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, goods on the streets, go back and tell their friends, oh, we could make, sell these apples or sell this tea for 10 times the price that we're selling it here. You could come stay in my dorm room floor and, and start trading. Um, and, and so these networks just started to emerge. And I think for me, it really was this story. And that, again, going back to my initial impressions of Leningrad and Moscow, and even as a scholar, you get the sense that they're sort of walled off by this um, residence permit system and it's very difficult to get in and there are these zones of privilege. But in fact, uh, these networks, I mean, Leningrad and Moscow were integral um, to how people were living, even in southern Tajikistan and, and Azerbaijan. I think that was really interesting. The, the impression we have of the Soviet Union is exactly this. It's a very kind of immovable or static society where not only is there no move, movement in terms of you know social dynamics, in terms of social hierarchy, but also there's just no movement in terms of space. And, and what you and other scholars are really pointing to now is that there is actually a lot of movement going on um, for a variety of different reasons. So how do you understand the way the, say, the Soviet system and its institutional uh, configurations either tried to prevent or facilitate migration? Because as you said, a lot of people are coming to, from the, from the 1920s, are coming to, say, Moscow, the study in universities. And, and also, if you join the party, you could also perhaps get a job in Moscow at some point or be transferred somewhere else. Yeah, there were certainly a lot of debates about this in, in the Soviet Union at the time. So when I go back and read the literature of, of urban planners, for example, versus politicians, there was, first of all, there, there was a recognition that the Soviet Union um, needed Leningrad and Moscow as bases to train people. Um, and everybody was pretty much on board with that. But the, the question was, do you just send them home afterwards and, and do you keep Leningrad and Moscow as these Russian cities or not? Especially as it became clear in the, after the Second World War that if, when you started to wall off these cities with these um, residence permit documents that people needed, the population was starting to age um, and, and the economic opportunities were be, be, being unfilled. So they had all of these different types of visas that in these sort of limited um, registration permits they would try. Uh, but a lot of urban planners in the 1960s onwards were saying like, this is a very um, uh, unpredictable way. It's, 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 it's not clear that this kind of thing is going to keep Leningrad and Moscow in their status as top cities in the Soviet Union. So they really relied a lot on these unofficial networks. And it was it's a version of what we've seen a lot of scholars talk about in terms of the way the second economies and the first economies were interlinked. 
is that the Soviet Union really relied on this unofficial migration. These people weren't necessarily, I mean, they were Soviet citizens, so they were allowed to come to Leningrad and Moscow, um, but they technically shouldn't have been there for a long period of time without this residence permit document, but very rarely were, were they checked. And it's not too unique. And I think one of the things that really interested me, and, and I was doing a lot of reading on um, these types of major Western industrial cities at the same time, they all have the same dynamic, is that they all want to keep control over the content of their populations, um, whether that be through uh, residence permit systems in, in Eastern Europe and Europe, or just uh, visa systems, or, or through um, the way that they, they charge more money for for things in the center of the city, all kinds of different tactics. They rely on young, unofficial migrants, undocumented people to come in, bring energy, bring cheap labor, bring goods, knowing that they can always send those people back if, if either there's a social resistance to people who are generally look different from you, or there's some kind of economic downturn where the perception is that these people are no, no longer benefiting the city, at least. Um, so you know, I, I really was able to, to connect Leningrad and Moscow um, to the rest of uh, the sort of global cities, New York, London, Paris, you know, through their own imperial networks. It started, as we talked at the beginning of this question, in the 19th century, the 20th century, and, and the people who started to come more and more. I mean, you look at them, they all are from areas where there's a strong uh, imperial post-colonial, and, and then in the post-World War II era, then you get the sort of the post-Cold War relations, people from African states coming where the Soviet Union had a had a large, large presence. So um, I, I really found that um, aspect of, of Leningrad and Moscow as these global uh, cities, very similar to Western ones, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Now, what, there's a lot of interesting uh, kind of Soviet language and concepts that come up in these oral interviews. And, and one particularly strong one is the notion of friendship of peoples. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, debate as to how strong this ideology was in the late Soviet period, if it actually still had currency. And, and it seemed to, you know, res still resonate with a lot of the people you, you interviewed. Um, so how did the, the, the notion of the friendship of peoples figure into ideas of Soviet citizenship and migration for, for the migrants you talked to? Yeah, I remember, when, again, going back to my first trip to the Soviet Union. So it was 1992, and you'd see all these images of the, all the uh, slogans and, and the whole, above these buildings. We work for the friendship of peoples and so on and so forth. They were all sort of falling apart. And I got this sense after, of course, after the perestroika era, well, this probably was all a myth. Something started by Stalin. I wasn't too sure. and, and But when I first started just throwing in the phrase in interviews, I wasn't really expecting it to be a big issue, the emotions that came through with the people I talked to about what this meant to them. And a lot of it was, um, I would say, certainly tied to the time I was interviewing, which was a time in the um, post-Soviet Russia where there was ethnic prejudice that turned so deadly. And so there was a nostalgia aspect to it, certainly. But I, the more I went to it, I just, I, I saw it went beyond that. It really reflected the fact that these people felt the Soviet Union was a meritocracy and that if you worked hard enough and you studied hard enough and you got fives, um, you know, the top grade in your high school or whatever, 
uh, you would get a chance to go to Leningrad or Moscow and you would be treated well and and you could walk the streets without any worry because you were a Soviet citizen and some people said oh we were even treated better than um, than others because we were guests uh, that this would this really meant something to them and also the friendships that they formed and dormitory life, I think, came up again and again. That, oh, in our dorm, we had Russians, Ukrainians, uh, we had Lithuanians, we had Kazakhs, Armenians, Africans, we meals together. And, and so this nostalgia for the Soviet Union combined with this nostalgia for youth, um, I think, came came with it. It, it wasn't, uh, they weren't uncritical of the, the concept. And again, this, this sort of varies between person to person. And they said, well, part of it was that we realized that when we came to Leningrad and Moscow, these were Russian cities. And part of their friendship was, first of all, we recognized that the friendship placed the Russians on top. And that because we were friends and we went to Leningrad and Moscow, we had to realize that these were cities of our friends. So we were in their house, so to speak. So we would dress like they did. We would learn Russian. Um, and, and this was just the way it was. Uh, so there was some uh, bitterness about the fact that often they, they had to go to Russia. Some people said, I would have liked to have stayed home instead of going to Moscow, but we had to do it. But still, the friendship allowed us a vehicle. And the, just having access to that discourse, I think for them, meant something. Um, and and you know, the, the, the sort of interesting thing about Moscow and Leningrad as these centers of the friendship of people, because they, they also had um, very practical reasons to go. Like there were all these festivals at uh, these sort of Dakati, these 10 day festivals. And, and if you went, you got to go to Leningrad and Moscow and get free accommodation and see the cities and and play a concert in a in a great hall and it was all very exciting um and that also then gave you prestige coming back home um but there were some people who who said well Leningrad and Moscow were very good and, and ironically it was because the friendship of people was not working in their own republic so say somebody who was in uh, Frunze, which is Bishkek today, or, or Baku would say, like, Russians in my, our cities were colonizers. They they took things over. But when I went to Leningrad and Moscow, these were true international cities. And that's where their friendship with peoples really came to be. But um, I, I I still remember people telling me, as more than one person, they would, sometimes when the, the early interviews, especially when I was a little bit more skeptical of the friendship with people, and, and I'd say, really, you know, it's what's up. And, and they'd say, you know, you come to my house for dinner and I'm going to show you my uh, I'm Ruth back. I'm going to show you my Russian husband. I'm going to call my sister-in-law she has her Armenian and we're going to talk about the friendship of people. You'll see it and it still lives and and and, and the number of people and people would say that when I asked further questions about citizenship and I'd ask them how do you consider it and they say oh I was a Soviet citizen then and I'm still a Soviet citizen and, and I think that was that was really fascinating. Yeah that that is really fascinating that people still see themselves as Soviet citizens in, in many respects, especially considering now that, you know, not only is the Soviet Union gone, but these are all independent states. But we'll, we'll address that, that interesting concept in a bit. Um, now, people who, who come from Central Asia in particular, I mean, they're, they're to Moscow and, and, and Leningrad, they're really traveling over long, long distances to migrate. Um, what is the, what is the experience of, of migration from the Soviet periphery to the core? Is it is it a step migration? Is it a direct one? I know for some it certainly is if they're going to study, for example. How does it work? Are there cities, um, you know, in the Soviet Union that are are kind of temporary, for lack of a better word, way stations for migrants? 
Yeah, it wasn't so much way stations as there were networks um, that many Russian cities had that had established links with certain parts, uh, certain say villages or towns in say Uzbekistan or, or another place. And so, or Kursk or, or Norilsk or something like that, there might have been some Uzbek who went there, came back and said, oh, I can, um, I can set up a little trading stand here or something like that or sell food. They would go. And so the people who would go to Leningrad and Moscow, which was, of course, the, the largest numbers, uh, they tended to go direct. And, and really, one of the um, facilitating ways that this was done was just the Soviet system kept travel so cheap. Uh, so um, air travel was 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 quite cheap, and, and train travel um, was was cheap too. And because the Leningrad and Moscow were hub and sp- you know, the Soviet Union was a hub and spoke system all through Moscow, people would end up you know even if they were going to um, Tula or something like that, they would go to Moscow anyways. So there were some stories about real um, senses of challenge on these train trips. And uh, a few of them said when they came back from Moscow with a bunch of money, um, they might be a little bit worried about um, somebody stealing it. But more than that, it was just sort of the loneliness they felt. So some of my migrants, and this is sort of maybe... Uh, you know, I, I didn't have enough women maybe in my set to sort of generalize this, but a lot of the women who had families and they started to trade in, in Moscow, they'd say, I got on the train, I waved goodbye to my family. It took me four days to get to Moscow. I cried the whole way. And and it was a really hard um, feeling for them. But I think they just, they sort of accepted the fact that uh, if I'm going to go to Leningrad and Moscow, I'm going to have to sort of deal with this um, distance. Uh, and uh, they couldn't really, of course, there's no, the, the, they could write letters, but not many of them talked about even communicating. And once they got there, they had their own networks. And that's why it was a very, um, uh, a migration that was driven by coming there to see people you already knew. So the way a lot of these traders, they'd, they'd sleep on the dorm floors at their aunt or uncle, or somebody would say, oh, I've, I've heard a job in Moscow, go tell your cousin, and then this person would come. So they really formed their own um, communities. They were very often town-based or family-based. They weren't really uh, organized diaspora communities in the sense that we we see them. But there was this, this real relationship between uh, is Leningrad Moscow um, families, for lack of a better word, and, and those at home. Did, was migration tended to be uh, temporary or seasonal? Because, uh, you know, most people who, who go to another city from another, you know, who come from another place, they don't necessarily always intend to stay. There's always a sense of, you know, a desire to go back after you learn, earn enough money or you get your education. But, you know, life works out in different ways. So so how did that how did that work? Yeah, I, I, I struggled with this. Um, it's a great question because it was really difficult for me to even think about, OK, how do we define migration? Because certainly a lot of these people came um, and often they would just come to see their uh, sister or brother in the dorm room. They, they, they'd intend to stay for a week or two and they'd realize, hey, like I could make some money by just bringing some flowers up. And uh, so they would go back and they'd say, oh, I'm going to come back next year. And then they'd, they'd come and they'd bring a bunch of whatever food or flowers. They'd stay for a month and then go back and then, then they start doing it regularly. Um, and then they start to get involved with these networks that would rent, that would um, take trucks from the collective farm and drive all their agriculture up and they would do it seasonally. Um, there are other people who came and, and never intended to stay and, and just kept getting jobs when they were there, um, met a, maybe a local person and married them. Uh, so there was no one way to really describe that entire body of experiences, right, from the sort of short seasonal migration. Sometimes it was temporary just to fill 
a little bit of a, a void in the family budget um, to people who came and, and became doctors or engineers and, and or party members and just moved to Moscow and became Muscovites and, and that was it. And so it's it was everything within that spectrum. Considering most of your most of the people you talk to are from from Central Asia and as you and with the idea of friendship of peoples, we need inevitably issues of uh, ethnicity, but also something you interrogated, which is a big scholarly debate about nature of race and racism in the Soviet system. So um, how did race and racism figure into the migration experience? What do you, what do, and what do you learn about the concepts of race and racism in, in the Soviet slash Russian context? It was a learning process for me, certainly, because when I started, and again, this, the time period I was starting this project was 2005, 2006, when um, you started to get this wave of attacks in Moscow and, and St. Petersburg of uh, against Central Asians and Caucasus peoples that were uh, clearly they were labeled racial. We, we sort of no, recognized them as racial. So I, I had this question in my um, early interview saying, well, did you experience racism in the Soviet period? And the interview uh, subjects look at me and say that there was no racism in the Soviet period. And, 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 and but part of that was a part of that was a term like racism. Right? They did not recognize that as anything that happened. They recognized that term as something that happened to blacks in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. And they just didn't recognize race as a concept. So I, I, I went back and I kind of rejigged the question to say, does, was there anything that happened to you when, based on your national background or your appearance? And then I would sort of start to get answers. So I had to make the decision, like, when do you call race, race? And, and that was as opposed to using ethnicity or opposed to using nationality. And, and I can't say that I was 100% confident in, in, in my interpretation. I try and leave it to the reader to think about it. But as I start to go through these interviews, people would tell me, well, it wasn't just because I was Uzbek or, or Kazakh. It was because I had uh, I had very narrow so-called oriental eyes, or I was very dark-skinned, or I dressed a certain way. So what are these, these attributes that you would attribute to race? So I, I decided to use race. And, and really, um, I focused on it as a... Uh, Almost a relationship, because having and part of this was a personal thing too. Having grown up in a a lily white city in British Columbia, Canada, as one of the very few ethnic minorities, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be attacked. Um, I didn't feel unsafe. But you you get these sort of questions. It's like you know where are you where are you from? And you say Canada. No no where are you really from? And you get these you get these stares and and you get people kind of giving you these little uh, veiled insults and and so that was sort of what I and that's what I heard from my subjects too. Very similar kinds of this everyday put downs and and these kinds of things that um, some would shrug off and, and a lot of them would say like. I heard it and I didn't, I didn't care because I, I just wanted to make Leningrad in Moscow. For others, it was very emotional. It was very hard to get them to talk about it during the interview. And that was another challenge also. But what I, what I found was that people, on the one hand, understood that there was this sort of racial ethnic hierarchy and, and white Russian people were on top in, in Leningrad and Moscow and, and throughout the Soviet Union. And that they almost had to expect the occasional comment or something. Now, there were some who said that, I would say, racism never, not only racism, never existed but i was treated fantastically i went to moscow for 20 years nothing ever nobody ever said anything to me others would say i lived in moscow these people looked exactly the same um more or less um i lived in moscow for 20 years and every day i went out people would call me a monkey and, and so you know how do you how do you try and um interpret that but 
I caught a big enough body of evidence that um, <clears throat> led me to believe that there was something there. And certainly you did see in the archives and in the newspapers and when the, some of the Russians I talked to, when traders started coming to Moscow really in the late 1970s and early 1980s, that's when you start to get violence. And, and not only were there, was there sort of violence, now there was, they would always be, these stories were always prefaced by saying, well, <clears throat> I was friends with most of my Russian customs, but there would be some who would come and say, I cheated them, and then they'd try and attack me, the, or they'd bring the police, and the police would then come and tell them to give the money back to the customer, and then they'd steal the rest of their money. There were there were attacks or sort of these racial quarrels in the market. So there's this combination of social um, and ethnic uh, and racial uh, composites that go into this uh, discrimination. But uh, it really, to me... Um, struck me about and going through this interview process about how people wanted to have, show their own agency within this racism. Like I wasn't going to let whatever the Russians said or did um, destroy my life or destroy my chances for a future. I was going to navigate it. I was going to balance it. Now they could say this, and <clears throat> certainly it was unlike the Russian uh, period in the late 2000s, so 2005, say to 2012, at the height of the racism there, when they they didn't have to worry about being killed. Really, nobody right. said that. Um, they might have to worry about being beat up, maybe, but because they didn't have to worry about that, and that's one reason why the friendship of people has this resonance, they were then able to really find their own way in terms of uh, how to deal with race and race and racism. So I, I, I can't say that when I interviewed people, most of them said, yes, there was racism, but it was more when I went to these interviews, I sort of read them through, thought about them, thought about the way we as Westerners and Western scholars understand identity that yes this was race so did you find any any experiences where their experience of racism was more institutional because you know one of the things we hear say from soviet jews is more you know not just a individual experience of you know being treated uh in a you know people being racist against them as individuals but an institutional racism within the soviet system and and considering that the people you you interview a lot of them are are academics and kind of a managerial class of sorts did they did you get any sense of an an institutional racism against them it was really interesting that i i didn't near it to the extent that i thought and and even when people might be tempted to say there was institutional racism and sometimes these were academics who said well I was denied this promotion or I was isolated and so even though I was from the region expert on the region you know the Russians sort of set me aside they would tend to identify it with an individual person and say oh that person was a racist and so they made sure I was cut out I didn't get one person who said the Soviet Union, to the extent they said the Soviet Union was maybe a pro, a sort of Russian state, a colonial state, they would talk about their own home territory being colonized. They really tended to talk about Moscow and Leningrad, and you know, there's some nostalgia there, I, I wouldn't deny that, but none of them said, well, I, I couldn't get a, um, I couldn't get a position or something like that. So the most that I would get was that <clears throat> it was understood, that there was an understanding that for people from the Central Asia and the Caucasus is that when you left, when you finished your program of study, you were expected to go home. And if you didn't go home, then it was, it was sort of a problem and people didn't know how to deal with you. So um, there was that, that, that institutional arrangement, but there wasn't an arrangement that, um, or there wasn't, there wasn't anybody who said, well, 
somebody shoved a document in front of me or, or somebody said, well, the Communist Party doesn't want you here or something like that. It was more about these sort of, and, and, and this is how a lot of, and again, part of the source beats I'm using with these, these interviews, people tend to personalize these kinds of experiences, both for themselves and for the other person. And and it's 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 interesting when you you brought up this example of of Soviet Jews because um, this was one way sometimes some of the Central Asians would portray themselves as being more included in the Soviet sort of body, say, than other even white nationalities. So I did get a few completely, obviously, unsolicited responses when I would talk to them. These were students, people who were students at the time. And we just talk about you know, what was your experience and did you have any issues? And a few of them would say, well, I had this issue with such and such a professor and, and he gave Central Asian uh, twos and when he gave Russians fives. And, you know, when I recall now, he was a Jew. And I just kind of looked at them and I said, like, what? I, I didn't really want to kind of dwell on the issue. But um, there, there, there were a few cases where it was clear the, the narrative strategy that these people were trying to say is that we were proper Soviet citizens. We had had our passport, we had our nationality, we were sort of loyal, um, as opposed to say, you know, Jews were sort of one category that they would talk about, or they talk about people from Eastern Europe, or especially from Africa, who weren't Soviet citizens, and they were, and therefore that made them feel included. And I think that's one of the reasons why you don't get this sense of sort of instant. And also too, the borders were free, like you could just travel. And I think that's what a lot of people would keep saying. This narrative came up to me quite often. I wasn't the first person to hear it. I, I remember reading uh, uh, Madeline Reeves, who put a um, an article in our everyday life uh, work, and this this concept of we were free in the Soviet That kept coming up, and, and I think they kept saying, well, we could just go to Moscow. Whenever. We had this, the Soviet Union was our world. We could do things. We didn't have to worry about being out on the streets. We didn't have to worry about this. The state would, we sort of knew the state would kind of take care of us. So we were just free to sort of live our lives. And, and that was sort of a really fascinating uh, narrative that came up time and again. A lot of these people who are migrating, particularly in the early 1980s and mid-1980s, are, are doing so at a very uh, tumultuous time politically, in the larger political context of, of the Soviet Union. So how did perestroika impact the migrant experience? Things changed a lot. And I think that was one of the... So I had originally planned to make perestroika a separate chapter of my book. And then in the end, when I started to kind of wade through the interviews, I started to understand how the, the migration experience changed both in the early years of perestroika and then in the later years. So for, I would say for most of my um, respondents, when they talk about like the, uh, if they were to say, well, everything changed here. It wasn't 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. It was, it was 1989, so it was late 1989, when it was, it was pretty clear to them that the promise of Glasnost and perestroika had disappeared. And that even if the Soviet Union was going to continue, there was, most people thought, well, I still, still thought that the Soviet Union was going to be around, but they said they knew it was not going to be in the same form that it had been before. And that's when you started to get shortages on the streets, um, and you started to get more ethnic tension. You started to hear, and, and some of the, um, newspapers, I, I went to a lot of the periodical press in 1989, 1990, partly with press freedom laws, relaxed state censorship, you start to get very overtly racial um, characterization. So 
newspapers where they were saying, well, these Central Asians are bringing AIDS. And, and so it was a really challenging calculation for these people. And they said once it hit 19, now there, there's a, there was this excitement in 87, 88 that there, among some intellectuals, especially who I interviewed, said, we remember that time when all of a sudden we could start reading um, Arabic poetry openly and, and, and um, discuss ideas and our professors threw away the old textbooks and we just started talking and, and they loved it. But they, along with everybody else, of course, recognized that once um, the life got hard, um, and this is in a way this was a legitimizing for the people who stayed, they said, well, I can't really blame the Russians for being more racist because just life was pretty hard at that time. Um, but others also recognized that because life was really hard, there were these issues of food. There were these issues of like for traders, they said that once it hit like 1989, we traded, we went home to our apartments, we didn't go out in the evenings. Um, and then you had to, they had to start to think about, okay, where am I going to spend the next few years of my life? If Moscow is not going to be able to guarantee food to me or guarantee safety to me, what's happening in my home village? So I had this this one really sort of heartbreaking story from a guy from Tajikistan. He had married a Russian, uh, and this was sort of 1990. And at first they were going to stay but then with the, the food issue and, and the uncertainty in Moscow, they thought they were going to go. Then they worried about sort of bringing her there because she was Russian. And then the civil war broke out and they were stuck. And, and so for a lot of these people, it was this very specific calculation about if I can go back to Georgia and live in my village and be guaranteed sort of food and some way of making enough of a living, I'll go back. If not, I'll stay in Moscow. And so um, for them, 1989 was really when that sort of idea of the Soviet Union ended for them. Let's talk about Soviet nostalgia because it's, it's, it comes up so often, it seems. What do you make of, of how the Soviet Union and their memories of migration and their narratives of migration? And, and what does that nostalgia say to you? What do you do with it and, and how you understand the Soviet system? Yeah, I, I, again, I, I, I was never in the Soviet Union. So, of course, I, it's always sort of hard when you're trying to infer from people's interviews and, and try and think, okay, well, if they're more emotional or less emotional, does that does that matter in the end? And you're trying to triangulate with different kinds of sources. I, I think for me, when I thought about the nostalgia issue, there were certainly some of these things that we talked about before that were very clear that you didn't have the hard borders. You generally had personal safety. You had a level of social support up until 1989, which is the reason why I think that date is so important. Um, and, and so all of these things were there. You had a, a level of basic security for people, the generation I was interviewing, which were people who were growing up in the 1960s, going to university in the 1970s, sort of their, their um, 1980s were sort of their time when they were in their maybe 20s, 30s. Um, and then you tie that into just a real nostalgia for youth. And I think for me, that's what hit me more powerfully. And a lot of these people were, were about my age. And that's the twinkle they got in their eyes. They remember they were 20 and they were 25 before they had a family, um, before they had to worry about things. And especially once the Soviet Union collapsed, they really had to worry about things, right? They had to worry about jobs, houses, money, things they didn't have to worry about maybe to the same extent in the Soviet period. And they love to talk about that. They just love to talk about what life was like when they were young. And when they were young, they had no barriers in front of them and, and they could they could aspire to all these different things. And I think part of that was true and the extent that they gave me so many examples of like, if I wanted to work hard and I studied hard, 
I could go to this university and and it was hard to it was hard to do it in Moscow because everybody was striving. But if you really showed your qualities, you could make it. Right? There was a sort of Soviet dream, I suppose, idea. And I, I think now the migrants I'm interviewing are sort of subset of people. Right? These are people who actually decide life in this village in southern Kyrgyzstan is not for me. I need to go to the big city. I need to prove myself. So they're not necessarily representative. But for these people, there was a sense that the Soviet Union offered uh, opportunities for them regardless of their family situation. So they could have been poor. They could have been um, uh, really un not having friends and family in Leningrad and Moscow. Now, they didn't recognize that, of course, you have to learn Russian. For some, they, they would sort of be bitter about that. But uh, I, I think that there there's something to the nostalgia. But of course, we can't ignore that it was a real uh, shift in the way so much happened when the Soviet Union collapsed and, and there's the whole body of literature on uh, on what nostalgia means for the present. I, I wish now, well, I mean, I, Project is sort of in my back mirror, but I kind of wonder if I interviewed people now in 2018, 2019, when the, the um, attacks uh, on uh, Central Asian Caucasus people in Leningrad, St. Petersburg, and Moscow are far fewer than they were 10 years ago or five years ago, would I get different kinds of answers? You know, that that I don't know, but it certainly was the case that people were were running a narrative views, like I said, re recreating their lives. And if their lives, if they felt sort of somewhat successful in their lives, they would give me a successful narrative of the Soviet period. Or if they were unsuccessful, often it was because something happened after the Soviet period. So you know, there was this whole range, and and it's you know, it's a it's a really fascinating way to sort of understand how people um, continue to recreate their pasts. Um, so, and, and it did make me feel like I really needed to the extent that I possibly could find as many, um, supporting sources, uh, newspapers, uh, you know, archival documents, uh, memoirs, these kinds of things to, to, to give me a sense of what else was going on. And because sometimes people would just sort of randomly jump back and forth. They'd say, oh, this happened in, and, 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 uh, there was this attack in, in, in Moscow and it really scared me and it made me realize the Soviet Union was, was, was coming to an end. I said, well, didn't that happen in like 1995? Said, oh, yeah, right. So, so, you know, you have to deal with that too. That was Jeff Sahadeo, an associate professor at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. He's the author of Russian Colonial Society in Tashkent, 1865-1923, and co-editor of Everyday Life in Central Asia. His new book is Voices from the Soviet Edge, Southern Migrants in Leningrad and Moscow, published by Cornell University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review on iTunes, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.